Hey, everybody, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast, where we're talking about art, technology, and most importantly, why you should give a shit. I'm your host, Andrew Herman, and I'm a startup founder, an engineer, and a creative. I am fascinated by the collision of art and technology. I'm excited to bring you along as I meet artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, and anybody else who lives on the border between art and technology. Today is a really interesting episode. We're talking to Leela Kinney and Evan Zaporin from the MIT CAST program. CAST stands for the Center for Art, Science, and Technology. And obviously, MIT is not necessarily known in their public face to be an art school. But as we were lucky to find out, uh, MIT actually has a really rich tradition in the arts. So today, you're going to hear from Evan and Leela as we talk about the history of the arts at MIT. Uh, some of the awesome projects they're working on with spiders and sound and a bunch of interesting stuff. And probably most interestingly to me, how they're able to keep a culture of creativity and exploration at a university with as much rigor as MIT does. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy the episode. Let me introduce Leela Kinney and Evan Zaporin. Welcome to another episode of the State of the Art. I'm really excited to welcome Evan Zaporin and Leila Kinney of MIT's Center for Art, Science, and Technology, aka CAST. So, how are you both doing? Good. We're doing great. Nice to be here. Is it, and I'm sorry, is it Leila or Leela? Let me make sure I get that right. Leela. Leela. Great. Okay. So, um, so I'm really curious, Leela, you mentioned in a previous conversation that, um, Arts are really nothing new to MIT, and while CAST is a relatively new addition sort of to the the ecosystem there at MIT, uh, there's actually a pretty long, rich history uh, of arts at MIT. Um, can you kind of give us a little idea of the background and why arts are so important at MIT? Sure, I'd be happy to. So it may surprise you to know that actually the founder, William Barton Rogers, who conceived of MIT right before the Civil War broke out in 1861, originally wanted to have a school of tech industrial science, a museum, and a society of arts. That was the plan. It didn't exactly come out that way um, because uh, the war broke out. Three of the uh, earliest um, courses were about engineering, and just after the Civil War in 1865, they added a school of architecture. Now, the interesting thing about architecture in 1865 is, of course, that it was Beaux-Arts, French, classical, based on the, on the uh, European tradition. So I always like to say that it was actually architecture that introduced the arts and humanities to MIT because they were teaching French, they were teaching drawing, they were t- teaching the history of um, classical art and architecture. But I think what we were talking about is that the arts really started to take off at MIT in the wake of World War II. MIT had been, like many institutions, a big part of the war effort. And after World War II, there was a great concern on the part of many people involved to um, both humanize science and technology and to really bolster the arts and humanities and the technical education, you know, the, the sort of threats to democracy that also the war had uh, brought to light. And so this took a little while, but I would say in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, the 13th president of MIT, Jerry Wiesner, 
who was an electrical engineer, was very concerned to make the arts a part of every undergraduate's ed education. And he really did a great deal to strengthen the arts at MIT. He um, also started the public art collection on campus here. He founded a council for the arts at MIT, one of the first of its kind in the country, a group of alumni, about 100 supporters of the arts. And eventually the Center for Advanced Visual Studies was founded in 1968 by Juri Kepish, who of course had been a refugee from the Bauhaus, briefly went to uh, Chicago and then ended up here at MIT, to was hired to teach drawing in the architecture department after World War II. Uh, came in 1945, actually. He realized that he was in a very different climate and said, oh, I really think that the artists and scientists have a great deal to say to one another. And the Center for Advanced Visual Studies was, was founded, which brought artists, engineers, scientists together in a research setting and explored working with new materials like water, light, steam, inflatables, and was really devoted to the idea of art as a form of research. Then uh, after, thereafter, uh, Jerry Wiesner and also Nicholas Negroponte founded the Media Lab in 1985 with a sort of expanded notion of media, arts, and sciences. And I think CAST, uh, from its founding in 2012, really kind of continues this tradition and creates an infrastructure to support it. Yeah, I think it's so, as an engineer, it's so inspirational to see that, you know, even though there's this cultural value on STEM and uh, engineering and MIT is sort of the, the king of the mountain as far as that that is concerned, that institutionally MIT seems to understand that the importance is how to balance that with some of the humanities and how to use them to work together, not as competing forces. Um well, I think that's very true, and it's, of course, reflected in our curriculum, too. I mean, we're probably one of the few schools that still has a real strong core tradition, a, a core curriculum, excuse me, as in 17 uh, required courses that all undergraduates take. And they're perfectly balanced between, you know, math, two semesters of calculus, science, two semesters of uh, physics. So there are eight on that side of the house, and then there are eight humanities are and social sciences. So it's an incredibly balanced uh, curriculum. And all undergraduates take an arts class before they graduate. Uh, and many more, almost half of them take an arts class each year, actually. Hmm. Yeah. So Evan, I'm curious, you've been with MIT since the 90s. Um, have you seen this perception of MIT predominantly as a tech school and you know, from an outside perspective, not having a whole lot of emphasis on the arts. Have you seen that change over time? And what is CAST doing to maybe change that perception a little bit? Yeah, I haven't seen it change as much as, as I would like to see it change. <laughs> I always knew that MIT had an arts program because the guy that was my competitor as a high school clarinetist went to MIT. Uh, so I kind of knew that, but I, then I sort of forgot about it. And I only found out about it again when I decided to go into teaching as part of my professional work. And I met um, a guy named John Harbison, who is one of America's most preeminent classical composers. 
because I was conducting a piece of his out in Berkeley. And, uh, you know, found out he taught at MIT. This really surprised me because his music didn't have anything to do with technology or, you know, was really straight down the line contemporary concert music. And uh, then I looked into it. And when I came here to interview, I just found this incredibly vibrant place with, uh, you know, in my field in music, soup to nuts. People like Harbison on the one hand, but on the other hand, people like Todd Macover, who's a great, uh, you know, innovator in the, in the electronic and computer music robotic music and then also kind of older guard people like Barry Verko who basically was one of the real pioneers in computer music back when computer music didn't even really exist right mm. and then people like Gene Bamberger who actually is now back at Berkeley who was doing really visionary work with music cognition and kind of applying Piaget ideas of child development and you know cognitive development to how people perceive music and i just thought wow this is really this is really an interesting place and it was a place that didn't have the baggage that i felt rightly or wrongly a lot of more traditional music schools had like i felt i could really come here and and just as long as i had a path i could follow that path and that turned out to be the case uh you know for me personally uh, i got here within a year or two i kind of said you know, I think we should start a Balinese gamelan. Uh, nothing to do with technology. And, and everybody just kind of went, yeah, sounds great. We've got to find a place to put it, but let's do it. And, you know, uh, one of the first people that joined that group was uh, an incredible uh, computer visionary named Richard Stallman, who is the head of the open source movement uh, and one of the, the writers of what eventually became Linux. And, you know, you just had these really fascinating people who had art as a very, very central part of their lives, already doing it. And it was great to tap into that. It was great to be able to do things as kind of traditional as a Balinese gamelan. At the same time, if we went like, you know, let's build, let's build an electronic gamelan. Well, then you could find people to do that. Uh, you could build robots. And then you could, you know, you could bring somebody in to play Beethoven string quartets at the same time, right? So for me, that openness was very appealing. And I always felt that on campus, but then I'd leave campus, I'd fly off somewhere and I'd sit next to somebody and I'd go, oh yeah, I, I teach music at MIT. And they'd go, oh wait, I didn't know MIT had music. Yeah. And I have to say that I think in the Boston area and maybe on the East Coast in general, that's kind of changed now uh, because we've been doing a lot more public facing programming. Uh, but I... We'll still get asked that on airplanes. Sure. So, <laughs> so I have to, I'll pretend that I know exactly what you're talking about. But for our listeners, what is a Balinese gamelan? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know, of course I know, but for our listeners, you know. A lot of people in Berkeley know. A Balinese gamelan <laughs> is, is the opposite of what you should find at a tech school. It's a traditional <laughs> uh, percussion ensemble from Indonesia. Very cool. Very cool. What, so this, I mean, I'll, I'll toss this up to either of you. I'm curious, what do you think it is about the personality of an artist and the personality of a technologist that seems to do so well at MIT? I mean, it's, it's a shame it's not known better, but it seems like you guys are being really successful in what you're doing there. Yeah, you know, this, what John Harbison always said was, we all, we, we both pull all-nighters. And I think that that, that's part of it, just getting wrapped up in an idea, more whatever that idea is, just finding 
something that you're obsessed with and you're going to see that idea through. Um, that to me really is the link more than anything else. But I also think it has to do with uh, lab culture. It's very similar to um, certainly to making music together culture, but, but possibly other forms of artistic making. Uh, I think it's really in this era where, you know, every other word out of everybody's mouth is makerspace. I think that's right. something artists all understand very well. Uh, going at something, not really necessarily knowing where it's going to lead, but being prepared to follow that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it's hands-on learning, which is a big motto around MIT. I mean, especially in the visual arts and design, which is so strong here. Uh, it's, it's not that big a bridge to the labs and you know, the, all the engineering cultures. So I think that's one reason uh, for it. And then I suppose it's, one has to say it's a cliche, but it's true. Often kids who are good in music are good in math. Mm-hmm. So we attract a certain pool. I mean, there's, I know that sort of, I've been tracking, entering students for a decade or so, and anywhere from, you know, 69 to 79% will come in with some previous training in music. It's, it's just in the, the pool that is interested in um, science and technology as well, I think. Do you think there's something about just the caliber of person that MIT attracts that sort of um, lends itself to polymaths or polyglots in general? Yeah, yeah, yes. I think so. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I mean, we're and, a little biased. In yes, we are. And also, I would say there is a culture of experimentation, just, you know, as Evan was describing with this uh, gamelon, sure, just do it. Let's yeah. try it. Let's find out what happens. I think that is very much um, a part of the culture here and part of the people who are attracted to it. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, both the engineer part of my brain and the creative part of my brain is excited just just hearing that that is so pervasive on campus there. What so, you know, I'm I'm based out in San Francisco and one of the things that happens out here is uh because San Francisco has historically been such a creative town and because there's sort of the socioeconomic dynamic of technologists coming in and sort of displacing a lot of the artists, um there has been a lot of tension between, you know, the people who tribally identify themselves as creatives or techies or whatever. Do you guys experience that at MIT? And if so, how do you deal with that? Not yet. You know, it's really interesting because if you just, again, talk about the undergrads, it seems like when they leave here, they either work across the street at a high tech firm that's, you know, within walking distance of MIT or they move to the Bay Area. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little bit to Seattle, but but we don't... I, for, I mean, that seems really, from the outside, that just seems really like driven by economic factors out there, right? Because people just can't afford places to live, right? Mm. Um, it may be coming here. Perhaps. But, we'll um, have to see. <laughs> or we may be in our bubble. But no, or maybe we're just lucky. Yeah. We, we don't feel that here so much. No. I mean, but again, it may be because we're in the belly of the beast. I mean, we're in we're in a place where, like, you know, one of my best friends and colleagues is a former student who did two things of note after he left MIT, and one of them was to you know start like a classical chamber ensemble, the Radius Ensemble, which is you know one of Boston's kind of 
most respected classical chamber groups. And the other was to invent guitar hero. Hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, you're dealing with people who can kind of walk both sides of that in both neighborhoods pretty easily. Sure. So So, so I'm curious. I mean, you know, you mentioned it really is an economic disparity, which I would agree with. Um, So I'm curious. I mean, cast had to be funded from somewhere. Um, and as I understand it, Leela, you were at the very beginning of, of the inception of cast and we're actually on the grant that, that got cast its initial funding from the Mellon foundation. What is the relationship with the Mellon foundation been like, and what do they see in cast? What are they trying to get out of it? That's interesting. They've been incredibly supportive. I think there is sort of nationwide an interest in integrating the arts in research universities, so I think they were interested in that. They were astonished, I think, that MIT had an arts requirement. Mm. You know, I think, you know, again, being the leading foundation for arts and humanities, that MIT was saying, yes, this is important. I think they were very enthusiastic about that. And I also think that they were appreciative of this visiting artist program that has really been robust here since the 1970s. I mean, this is one of the uh, legacies of the Council for the Arts. There were very few faculty in the arts, and so they raised funds to bring visiting artists here. So since the 1970s, um, we have done that. And so I think for all of those reasons, they were very interested in seeing um, CAST succeed. And they renewed our grant early uh, in... um, remember when it was but we're funded through 2020 by the Mellon so it's been a very successful and supportive uh, relationship led by Marriott Westerman uh, the VP who is herself an art historian and I think sort of understands what we're trying to do here hmm. so so I'd like to give you guys the opportunity just to to brag a little bit and tell us what exactly is cast and uh, you know can you give us some of the highlights of what you guys have been able to accomplish um, well, it is, I would say, an umbrella and an organization that really tries to embed the arts in every aspect of MIT life, curricular and uh, non-curricular. So how do we do that? We, uh, twice a year, we put a call out to all labs, departments, and centers here. So that's, you know, everything from CSAIL, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, to, you know, music and theater. And we ask faculty, who do you want to work with? What do you want to do in terms of visiting artists? And so we're building on this collaborative culture by funding and then uh, helping to produce and present visiting artist programs. We also um, fund cross-disciplinary courses and sometimes even commission them. Active Matter uh, came out of that, which we can talk about maybe a little bit more in a moment. We also do symposia that bring artists, scientists, humanists, and engineers into the conversation around a topic of deep research interest here. The first one was on art and the cognitive sciences. The more recent one uh, was on art and uh, material sciences and developments, uh, especially in recent years that have made possible new materials for our artistic exploration and so forth. And, um, we also fund faculty research projects of various kinds in, in, the, in and around the arts. So that's what we do. We sort of re-grant, we fund, we produce, and we present. Oh, and Evan, of course, 
has a performing arts series, MIT Sounding, which he can tell you about. Yeah, I think, uh, so we, I should say that CAS stands for Center for Art, Science, and Technology, if that wasn't stated up till now. And it, I, what it came out of was this festival that we had in 2000, is it 11, I guess? 11, yeah. Which was MIT's 150th anniversary, called the Festival of Art, Science, and Technology. And that was really spearheaded by Todd Macover, who's a composer I mentioned before, who teaches in the media lab, has been there a long time. Um, and he had this brilliant idea of kind of digging deep into the campus to see what was around. So that year was a year of art at MIT that involved bringing in some, you know, really amazing visiting artists on the music side. We brought in the Kronos Quartet. We brought in Bang in a Can. Mm. Uh, we, we brought in Hauschka. Um, quite a number of people that I'm not. We had symposia. Right. We uh, commissioned. We had a contest, a competition for undergraduates. The head of the architecture department, Mi Jin Yoon, here did a map of the campus of possible sites for installations. So we did a competition for the undergraduates to do installations and also commissioned um, design and architecture faculty to do installations. We ended up doing 22. They were sort of pop-ups that would appear, su surprise, one day uh, across hmm. the entire semester. This went on for four or five months, cumulatively, um, the festival. So, and, it, and I think Evan's right. We curated the campus is what we did. <laughs> yeah. And I, I do want to give Todd a lot of credit for having the idea of really reaching, reaching out across campus to do that. And it also came out of this campus tradition that was, has been called hacking long before hacking was a, was a yeah, term, right. <laughs> which were basically these, these kind of cosmically conceived and realized practical jokes that really became conceptual art at a certain point, you know, so where you'd kind of show up to campus one day and there'd be an MIT police car on the dome of the, of the main <laughs> campus, you know, it's like that. And so again, this, I think points to this um, merger between tech and art that's always been here. You know, that people at MIT tend to go all the way when they want to do things, right? Hmm. So just the idea of, okay, let's suddenly like turn this stairwell into a place where a sculpture can exist. That just fit right into the way the culture works here. And now there are permanent statues and several stairwells here and in a way cast is one of those permanent stairwells because that year ended and i think what came out of it was this idea that not just that mit okay values the arts in some abstract sense and maybe has these arts programs though it certainly has that but that campus-wide the mit community had a sensibility that was really geared toward the arts and we should try to champion that so you know um you know, material science has a glass lab. They've had it for years, right? They've had it because they needed to make equipment for chemistry labs, right? But over the years, the glass lab became an incredibly popular place for people to learn the ancient art of glass blowing and just make art, right, from, from glass, right? Mm. So then it just became extending on that. Well, what do you guys want to do next? Well, uh, we'd like to make musical instruments. We want to make an orchestra out of glass instruments. Okay, let's find you an artist who, who will do that with you. And so not just bringing in people like who even within the arts are genre crossing, like say the Kronos Quartet or somebody like that, but finding people who you could actually embed with material science or embed with 
CSAIL or embed with, uh, you know, electrical engineering, really finding a way to bring artists into the labs. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Kinetic sculpture is another example of that. Bring in artists to work with engineering students on making kinetic sculptures that then demonstrate basic, you know, physics principles and principles of movement and so forth. I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community, increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes footage, and a chance to be our super fan of the week. And let me tell you, this is pretty cool. Super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. One of the projects that you kind of alluded to in an earlier uh, research call was um, this arachnid project with uh, Thomas Saraceno. Is that right? Saraceno, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that project? And does that does that relate to the kinetic sculpture stuff? Um, yes and no. Um, I'll tell you a story about Thomas Saraceno. I discovered his work in 2009 in the Venice Biennale. And I was dragging uh, one of my young adolescent daughters around, and she suddenly went into this room and saw this three-dimensional installation of a black widow spider's web called uh, 13 bill- 14 Billion, I think was the name of it. And he took that title because he, it was the age of the universe, what it uh, presumably uh, physicists use a metaphor for describing what the universe might have looked like just after the Big Bang, and they use the image of a black widow spider's web. Well, no one had ever tried to visualize that in three dimensions. Hmm. So he actually developed a method to scan a three-dimensional spider's web. There had been work on orbs before, but not on black widow, very much more complex. Anyway, so that was his work. And I remember I had a little notebook and I wrote in it, oh, interesting for MIT. Eventually, he became the, the inaugural visiting artist uh, for uh, the Center for Art, Science and Technology after we were established. And it just so happens that he met someone in Berlin who was giving a paper related to Marcus Bueller, the head of civil environmental engineering work on the molecular structure of the proteins in spider silk. Hmm. He's very interested in, in spider silk, like you know, many civil engineers, because it's such a flexible and at the same time tensile um, material. It would make a great artificial uh, building material. So anyway, they were introduced when uh, Thomas came to MIT. Thomas ended up giving him the data from his scans because uh, Marcus was also developing a mathematical model to look at the sort of uh, structure and stresses and construction 
of a spider's web, which is a kind of magical thing that's built, you know, in space without scaffolding and so forth and so on. So this project has continued since then in various um, uh, phases and iterations. If you know Tomas's work, he often makes large-scale installations based on the morphology of um, spider webs. And that work continues today and is now taking musical form because mm. <laughs> Evan is involved in working on um, a, a concert that will be in Paris on the occasion of Tomas's uh, survey show at the Palais de Tokyo in the fall. Well, I should say that, I mean, the musical form of it came out of when Tomas was first here and we all, we had just this kind of big celebratory dinner. And I mean, Tomas was talking to a bunch of people on a bunch of different programs and uh, got several things going on, but he really hit it off with Marcus Bueller of, of uh, civil engineering, as, as Lila said. So we had this kind of crazed dinner. And at a certain point, Tomas got really excited about, you know, I want to make an instrument that is basically a big spider web, you know. And he had this very vivid way of saying, you know, just think of the spiders on the web going bing, bong, bing, bong. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of a, <laughs> it was a loose idea. But it sort of stayed in my mind. And then what happened was that on his own, Marcus had been given these 3D South American spider webs uh, by Tomas. And when I say given 3D spider webs, webs from South America, I mean, literally, they have these 3D spider web, these giant spider webs that are just sitting in these aquariums <laughs> in, in his office. And they were, they've been digitally mapping them, right? So they took scans of them, uh, you know, across all three axes and then combined them. And even that imagery itself is just really beautiful. And he assigned this really brilliant graduate student, Isabel Sue, to sonify it. So she kind of mapped it. And then we had some discussions about how you would go about making music out of it. And those discussions still go on. And we're using, um, you know, kind of now we're using a combination of fairly available software to do that. So we're using game platforms like Unity, and we're using Max MSP for the sound. And we're just trying to figure out what it would be, what it would sound like to be inside a three-dimensional South American spider web hmm. on the assumption that they weren't being eaten. Don't literally mean what it would sound like, but just somehow like, what does that structure mean musically? And what does it mean as, as a being inside of that structure? Hmm. Uh, so that's an ongoing project. And that's been really like, for me, it takes me into areas that I literally would never have thought to go before as a musician. And this is, you know, this is my own personal story. And I have, I guess, kind of two sides to this because as director of the center, I'm mainly interested in just enabling other projects, but um, it's nice when there's something that enables my own work as well. In terms of Tomas, he said, look, if you're ever in Berlin, come by and uh, I'll take you to my studio and you can meet some of the spiders so a couple of years ago, I was in Berlin. I showed up at his studio and I had my bass clarinet. And he goes, oh, my God, the spiders, they're really, make, they're really vibrating today. Come on up, get your instrument out. And uh, the next thing I knew, we were recording duets between me and the spiders, hmm. uh, which he ended up using in uh, his Arachnid Jam Sessions uh, exhibition in Singapore. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is just putting people in the right place at the right time. I mean, in that case, it happened to be me. Right. But in general, what we're trying to do is a somewhat 
open-ended process-oriented undertaking where you find the right artist and the right technologist, engineer, scientist, whatever, and you let them play and see what happens. And maybe it turns into a finished product that's incredible. And maybe it just leads, helps both of them in their research or in their work and, you know, doesn't necessarily lead to, okay, here's this masterpiece or here's this installation or here's this performance, but just somehow something fruitful comes out of it for all concerned. Yeah. I, I love the notion of, of let them play. I mean, I think one of the, um, one of the, and maybe it's sort of a, a naive argument, but a frequent one nonetheless is, you know, in the, in the art space, you have this constant tension between sort of a purely creative approach versus a rigorous academic approach to creativity. Um, and I think you actually also have a very similar tension in the technical world too, although it doesn't get talked about as much where things get, um, you know, if anything, people lean the other way more towards the rigorous sort of academic approach, but they're still in technology has to be some spirit of creation and some spirit of, of uh, creativity. One of the things that's really fascinating just from listening to both of you talk is it seems like, you know, while some artists may be terrified of, the idea of rigorous academic approach. And while some technologists may be terrified of the freedom of creativity, it seems like you're really able to capture the sense of play that's necessary to mirror those, sorry, marry those two things together. Um, How do you think that happened? Well, I do think that we look for artists uh, who will thrive in the setting of a research university. and. So that helps. But it's also, don't forget that we're often asking faculty, who, who do you want to work with? So they are finding artists that can somehow harmonize with their practice or just will come in and pose a question that they hadn't really thought about before um, and that they can find a way within that question to advance their own work. I mean, that is really, I think, happened with Marcus and his students. I believe he's had two capstone projects, which is like the equivalent of an undergraduate thesis project in, in civil and environmental engineering, and a graduate student or two who have worked on aspects of this spider project uh, with Tomas's data and with his uh, scans. So I think that takes place in in many ways. Um, but it's about it's a little bit of matchmaking sometimes. I think we we work on that. Yeah, I mean, so there's two things. I, w- I mean, I agree with that. I think part of it is just uh, looking for chemistry, which mm-hmm. I guess is something you would know about at a place like MIT. But yeah. I mean, we didn't when we started it. We we had to make a virtue of necessity of the fact that even though Mellon was quite generous with us, we're not a very big center. Certainly not by kind of science standards or what MIT would think of as, you know, a center. I mean, we don't have a building. We have a very small staff. We don't, you know, we're not a department. It's just kind of us and a few other people who are trying to enable these things. So, well, how do we actually, what do we actually do? We don't have a place. We don't have, uh, you know, an academic program. And so the only thing to do is to go like, well, we have to find partnerships. You know, we, if we just bring in 
it doesn't matter who it is. We can bring in the most interesting artists in the world. If they have nobody to work with, nobody to talk to, then we're just giving them a room and we don't even have the room. Right. Mm. So from the beginning, we thought a lot about what the dialogue was with uh, the MIT community. And we do that in some formal ways and some informal ways. I mean, with most of the artists that we bring, we have some kind of exploratory visit first where we basically just invite them to campus and show them around, let them talk to people, see what kind of conversations ensue, put the word out that they're here. And we try to let even the projects themselves develop a little bit organically in that sense. And, you know, pretty soon you see who's going to work and who's not going to work. And you get some really interesting bedfellows, let's put it that way. So, I mean, I think, for example, when another one of our, our kind of long-term visiting artists, Pedro Reis, came here, uh, I don't know how you would really encapsulate his work, but it involves sculpture and theater. And I don't think that he came with the idea that he was end up going to end up making Noam Chomsky a character in his next theater piece, but that's what ended up happening, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and Noam Chomsky agreed. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's those kind of things, and I think also last year another uh, another kind of unexpected collaboration was between the musician Maya Beiser, who's a cellist and uh, you know certainly works with a lot of electronics and a lot of uh, you know multimedia components, but is not really kind of a high tech person herself. Uh, she ended up collaborating with Skylar Tibbetts in the self-assembly lab, you know, with using his materials, which respond to light as material for a dress that she would wear and for her stage set. And her idea was, well, let's make it respond to music, not just to light. Right. So, mm. uh, you know, I don't think these are two people that would have ever thought they had something to say to each other, you know, creatively, creatively, creatively or research-wise, um, if they hadn't happened to kind of both be around at the same time. But then it just happened to work. Yeah. That's fascinating. Is there <clears throat> is there anything that that you guys steer clear of or are weary of with this uh, sort of combination of art and tech and, you know, the, the fire that you're playing with here? Yeah, you know, uh, if, if, say you know, some unnamed science department comes to us and says, we want to have an artist in residence so they can make portraits of us doing our research. <laughs> that kind of yes. Thing. We don't, we're not as big on dancing to physics or something. <laughs> right, right, like right, right. We, we prefer not to instrumentalize the art and make it illustrate the science. Those things kind of turn off our selection committee a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 So just, we're not, I, I do want to say that one of the other things that we decided early on was that we wouldn't necessarily make technology be a necessary component in the artist's work, you know, mm. because that I think was very much inspired by MIT's approach to the arts all along that like, you know, a lot of our most accomplished students who are just happen to be like great cellists or pianists, um, you know, they get a lot out of that and then they bring it back to their other work, which might be in electrical engineering or coding or whatever. Uh, and they don't, it's not necessary for everybody to make the link. Like it's important for some people to have art in their lives and have technology in their lives and have there be some separation between them. Hmm. Um, 
And the, the link gets made in other ways. It gets made subconsciously. It has to do with, you know, I mean, I think a lot of our, you know, our more classical musicians say, well, look, it just kind of makes me more aware of how you work in a group, you know, putting together mm -hmm. kind of a, a Brahms string quartet helps me figure out how to work in a lab more effectively or, yeah. you know, how to write music, just uh, how to make a piece of music helps me just think about what it means to be creative. When I go back to coding, it helps. Yeah. And it's anything effable, right? It's not anything where you just go, yeah, oh, this is, this is how you do it. This is how you be creative. This is how you think outside the box. Yeah. You can teach somebody how to think outside the box, you know, yeah. but as they experience it in, in other areas of their lives, then they can make those connections for themselves. So I'm curious, <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, well, so there's, there's this whole sort of seam of topics right now that really do seem to be finding the intersection of art and technology. And a lot of them are really futurist ideas about um, the nature of artificial intelligence and the future of work and, um, you know, what is human the role of the humanities in how we're crafting the technological future. You guys are in the really unique situation that you're you seem to be sitting really right in the middle of that conversation with some of the most influential people um, in those conversations. How do you see cast uh, sort of oriented in some of those conversations? It's a great question. Yeah. Um, artificial intelligence. That is a really huge topic that MIT as a whole, as an institution is tackling through the future of work. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, this kind of interrelationship, what is the interrelationship between, you know, robotics and humans and so forth is going to be, I think, in terms of the arts in particular, there's a huge interest here in um, virtual reality and augmented reality. And we're seeing, especially on the student level, uh, a large interest in that. And we've had several significant projects around um, uh, virtual reality with uh, visiting artists and through the Open Documentary Lab, which is a part of our comparative media studies program. So I would, I would say in those two areas in particular, we're going to see a lot more experimentation. Mm. Great. Well, Leela, Evan, this has been awesome. Uh, I, like I said, I'm, I, one of my interests in doing this podcast is that I, I feel like I have in my own personality a lot of creative ideas as well as a lot of technical ideas, and it's really cool to see um, sort of it, the pinnacle of both of those, what people are doing and how they're mixing those two things together. Uh, just talking to both of you, um, I can feel the energy and excitement for what you guys are doing. And it's really, really inspirational, again, to see that this is happening at one of the top universities in the world. So uh, it's been great to chat with you for a couple minutes. The last chunk of our interview is always just to take a step back from AI and the impending singularity. We like to bring it back down into a little bit more fun zone. So I'm going to ask you guys a couple rapid fire questions that are just nonsensical off the top of your head, fire back, whatever you think you need to fire back. So I will, uh, I'll aim this one at Evan first. What fad or trend do you most want to come back into fashion? 
Disco. <laughs> Disco. Very nice. <laughs> the lifestyle or the music? <laughs> they go together. <laughs> I've got to get my leisure suit out of, a, out, of, out of cold storage when I'm ready. Fair enough. Fair enough. Leela, what irrational fear do you harbor? Irrational? And don't say so... spiders. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope it's spiders. <laughs> I say, is there room for irrational fear anymore? There's so many rational fears. Melt <laughs> <laughs> down of the planet. Shall we start with that? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I appreciate that. All right, back back to Evan. Uh, are you a cat person or a dog person? I have in my house right now seven cats and a dog who outweighs all of them combined. So. <laughs> so, so you can't pick one or the other. I'm a dog person. Very nice. Very I'm nice. A dog person, but I, I believe in peaceful coexistence. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and then I actually would like to hear from both of you on this one. What is your favorite quote or words of wisdom? Carpe diem. Very nice. That's a good one. I I, I'm blanking on this. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's quite all right. Quite all right. Well, Evan stole the show on the final question. Sorry. (laughs) Well, great. Uh, How about where can uh, where can listeners find you? Arts.mit.edu is the easiest place to start. Yes. Uh, Slash cast. Yeah. Slash cast. Or just at 77 Mass Ave, Cambridge, Massachusetts, if you're doing it old school, you know. <laughs> right just, underneath the dome. Look right. for the dome on the Charles River, right. where our offices are right underneath it. <laughs> nice. Just stop on by. Right. Yep. Please do. Great. Well, thanks so much, guys. Again, this the cast is such a cool program. I hope all of our listeners check it out. Um, I hope we get, you know, whatever next genius is coming up that's both uh, going to change the world in physics and music and art is coming through MIT Cast. I hope so too. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the state of the art. And I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Leela and Evan as much as I did. MIT is doing some really, really cool things. And it's just refreshing to see that a university as serious as MIT and uh, as technical as MIT is taking the art seriously and what they can do. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about CAST at MIT, I would check out arts.mit.edu slash CAST. Thanks for listening to The State of the Art. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. It really helps us out. Leaving a review is super easy and helps other listeners just like you discover our podcast. Look, we want to bring you the coolest conversations from art and technology, but we don't know everything. If you guys have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, please hit us up on Twitter or Instagram under the handle State of the Art. There's some other awesome exclusive content there, too. Until the next episode, this is your host, Andrew Herman, signing off from State of the Art.